It's a challenging time in Michigan, but we will rise to the challenge. We all need to do our best. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying coronavirus. So stay home, wash your hands often, limit trips to the store, and if you must go out, stay six feet from others and wear a mask. Stay home and stay safe. Learn more at michigan.gov coronavirus. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Edwith Theogene. Hello, Edwith. Uh, So it's hard to believe that this is the sixth Generation Progress takeover that we have hosted remotely. We are recording the show from home um, in order to practice social distancing and comply with vital stay-at-home measures. So for those of you staying home, able to stay at home, or working remotely uh, right now, thank you so much for helping us continue to flatten the curve. Um, And and if you're an essential worker, thank you so much for all that you're doing uh, to keep your communities afloat right now. It's really... uh, Thank, thank you for all all that you're doing. Uh, so much has changed in the past month and a half. Events have been canceled or put on hold. Uh, and so much of the news has understandably seemed to revolve around the progression of the pandemic. In this drastically altered reality, it can be hard to believe that we are still in the midst of an election cycle, let alone just six months away from one of the most important elections of our lifetimes. But we still do have an election in November. Uh, and people across the country will need safe and reliable ways to vote and have their votes counted. And ensuring that that happens in a country with an extremely dubious history with voting rights will take a lot of work and funding on the federal, state, and local levels. So to learn more about what needs to be done now to protect our elections during this emergency and beyond, we are joined by Tiffany Dina Lofton, the director of the NAACP Youth and College Division, as well as Danielle Root, the associate director of voting rights and access to justice on the Center for American Progress, Democracy and Government Reform team. Uh, Thank you both so much for joining us. So just to get started, uh, Tiffany, can you give us a quick overview of the mission of the NAACP and um, what and more specifically what your role as the director of the organization's youth and college division looks like? And shout out to all of our essential workers who are working tirelessly uh, around the clock to make sure that all of us are safe and okay. Um, So the NAACP has been around since 1909. Our mission statement is very simple. We work to secure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of everyone across the country. Um, I am the national director, as you said, of the Youth and College Division. One. And let you know, CP's youth across the country in middle school, high school, and in colleges. Um, that includes H- most all of the HBCUs, but it includes a as a company now, right? Focus on training young people really in three different buckets is how I like to define my work. The first is education around the issues that we focus on as a national NAACP. Number two is training our young folks in what advocacy looks like and how to advocate what they want um, to alter the relationships of power and to build political power. And then the third piece uh, is leadership development, making sure that they are able to have full functioning student chapters at their institutions and at their schools across the country and to make sure that when they transition outside of their leadership positions, they have other folks um, that are able to take on their position as president or vice president of their chapter in their organization. So 
Um, I look at my work really in those three big buckets. And I've been in this work now for 12 years, but at the NAACP for the last two. Awesome. Hugely important work, Tiffany. Um, obviously, they uh, you're doing right now more than ever, uh, especially in um, the young adult and youth vote space, um, hugely crucial. So, Danielle, I know that you have been a guest on this show before, so welcome back. Uh, but can you give us a quick refresh- refresher on what your role uh, on the CAP Democracy and Government Reform team entails? Yes. Um... The director of voting rights and access to justice on the uh, democracy and government reform team. Uh, so basically, my work sort of covers a broad range of issues. Um, mostly, um, I work on voting and election policy. So this spans from uh, election security issues to pro voter policy. Um, in addition, we do a lot of uh, just uh, basic election administration policy work, um, making sure that steps are taken um, and uh, different procedures are in place to ensure elections are run uh, both fairly but also effectively. Um, so that's what I do in the voting space. I also um, do some work around civil justice reform, serving the federal judiciary, um, and that sort of thing. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Danielle, and thank you, Tiffany. Um, as, a re- as recently as early March, the 2020 primary and general elections were being widely talked about, forecasted, and analyzed on a daily basis. In the last couple of months, however, the elections have understandably taken a backseat to news about the pandemic and how our government can respond to it. Um, but it's clear that the November election will happen and we will need to take our new reality into consideration as we prepare for it. Danielle, at a high level, what are some of the challenges that COVID-19 poses in terms of elections and public safety? Sure. So historically in this country, um, voting has been a largely social affair, right? You uh, gather with... Some people uh, go to polling places with friends, with families, with church communities um, to really share in the process of um, participating in our democracy. Um, Obviously, when we are in the midst of a pandemic and when we are getting guidelines from the CDC uh, to engage in social social distancing and to stay home as much as possible, that obviously throws a bit of a wrench. Okay. We're seeing in a lot of states uh, beginning to realize that the, you know, continuing to uh, over rely on in-person voting for the vast majority of voters is not going to be um, feasible in upcoming elections uh, if there is any hope to, to stop community spread and protect public health. Um, so right now in the vast majority of states, in-person voting remains the most popular voting method um, far far and wide. Um, there are about eight states where uh, elections are carried out largely, if not entirely by mail. Um, but in all other states, in-person voting is, is still the most um, popular method. Um, you know, if, if there's any hope to, to proceed with elections um, and adhere with criticism, allowing people to cast ballots from home is going to have to be the default option for for most voters. Um, Of course, there are a lot of people who um, vote by mail does not work well for, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later on this call. So in-person voting options must remain available, but uh, it is critical for voters that can vote from home to do so. Um, We also worry a little bit about uh, voter registration. So about college campus uh, registration drives. Um, A lot of those activities that are traditionally very useful in getting people to register to vote are either being canceled entirely or significantly scaled back because of the pandemic. And again, um, 
in adherence with social distancing requirements. So we are extremely worried about how the pandemic could impact voter registration rates this year that do not have policies like same-day voter registration, which allows individuals to register and vote at the same time, uh, either during early voting um, or, uh, or and on uh, election day as well. Thanks so much for that, Danielle. And I think that's, like you said, hugely important, um, especially since we know the first time somebody votes, um, it sort of uh, it breaks the seal, gives them an opportunity to do that uh, so many more times in their life. So we want to pick back up on that in just a couple of minutes. You've been listening to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, um, and we will be back with you after this commercial break. Life, liberty and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Rebecca Vallis with the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., the nation's leading progressive think tank. My job is to generate new policy solutions that will improve the lives of all Americans. Our work helps to shape the national debate on issues like economic prosperity, national security, poverty, and immigration. I hope you'll explore our ideas online at AmericanProgress.org and on Twitter at AMP. ROG. My son had been injured and he was prescribed pain opiates. No one ever told us how highly addictive these drugs were. My reaction was shock. My son didn't get so deep into the dark, scary woods overnight and it's no straight line coming back. For parents out there who don't have hope, I realize there's a lot of families that are torn apart, but families can heal. Young people can get better. There's hope and help at drugfree.org. A message from Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. What makes us Americans is what we do in tough times. Knock us down, we get back up. Americans stand up to tyrants and bullies. Freedom, equality, justice. Out of many, one. Work hard, do what's right. Pride in ourselves and our country. It doesn't matter the color of our skin, what our parents did or where we were born. Irish, Italians, Mexicans, Germans, Chinese, Salvadorans, Indians, Haitians. Our melting pot forges the American dream. And that dream keeps America going. It makes us strong. Trump ended that dream. And congressional Republicans failed to act. Isn't it time we had a Congress willing to make the dream real? Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1946. That was the day 8,000 UAW workers at the Alice Chandler's plant in Milwaukee voted overwhelmingly to walk off the job. Close to 12,000 production and maintenance workers were on strike across the country. Workers rode the post-war strike wave as whole industries moved to peacetime reconversion. Historian Eric Furslocum notes that UAW Local 248 had a historically militant left-wing leadership was known for its support to housing desegregation campaigns in the city, and was a central driving force of Milwaukee's CIO Council. They had built a strong shop steward and grievance structure at Alice Chalmers and were sure victory was certain. Local President Robert Busey insisted wage increases were not at issue, but rather unresolved issues remained to be settled now that the war was finally over. Key points of contention were the company's demands to eliminate maintenance of membership agreements that guaranteed the closed shop and union dues. The company also wanted to stop paying stewards for the time involved in grievance procedures. The Alice Chalmers strike was a harbinger of things to come. 
Historian Martin Halpern states that the company officials played a significant role in the crafting of Taft-Hartley legislation as the strike unfolded. Alice Chalmers was on a union-busting campaign and made no small effort to red-bait union leaders for months in local newspapers. By the fall, workers at the smaller plants had returned to work, but the Milwaukee local stood firm. Area CIO workers joined picket lines in support only to be brutalized and arrested. The House Un-American Activities Committee arrived in town to investigate the strike, and the company instigated a vigorous back-to-work campaign. After 11 months, the strike was called off with no contract and 91 union leaders fired. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Edwith Theogene. So uh, I wanted to come back here um, to a question we were talking about just before break, talking about some of the the top line um, overviews about why COVID-19 poses uh, additional um challenges uh, in terms of elections and public safety. Um, and Danielle, we got your take on that. But Tiffany, I'd love to to ask you, um, what are some of the steps that we need to take to ensure that people are able to participate safely in this election? Safely is the key word. I appreciate the question. Um, first, <laughs> that's, the real, that's the real question for 2020. Um, I agree with everything that Danielle said before the break, but, uh, but I want to add that I think there are two other things. One, the students and the young folks that I, the young black students that I work with across the country um, have been displaced, right? Like they're not able to be at school anymore. And we currently still have a whole bunch of states that have not yet done their primary elections. 15 states have actually postponed them. Um, some are changing the rules as we speak about how uh, they want people to participate in casting their ballot or registering to vote for the primaries and deadlines and et cetera have been changing. And so the biggest responsibility that we have on our department to make sure that our young folks can participate um, safely in this moment is to make sure that they're educated. They have to have all the information. They have to get the information as soon as the secretary of state or the decisions are made. They have to know um, if they have been displaced or if they have been relocated because they're not able to be on campuses or schools anymore. Do they request their mail-in ballot? How do they request their mail-in ballot? Um, there's a, 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 a unknown fact that people um, that I've been having conversations with folks on that folks didn't know that they actually had to request it. They thought it was going to come in the mail and they can go ahead and cast their vote. And I'm like, that's not how this works. So um, to be able to participate safely, if folks are not going to go out, which I agree, that needs to be mail-in voting, that needs to be in-person voting, as many options as possible. Listen, I'm also in the future. I want us to one day have safe, secure online voting. I want to make sure that we make election day a holiday, just like the Virginia governor did. There's things that we can uh, uh, continue to do to make Make sure everyone has access um, to the polling place and that they can cast their ballot and participate in democracy. Right now, in this moment of COVID-19, we have to make sure that folks have the facts as quickly as possible. Um, this, so that's the first thing, is making sure that they have the facts. The second thing that we have to make sure folks have is that the simple steps we'll need to take to ensure people are able to, partic able to participate is making sure that we have conversations to not only share what those facts are, but then folks are able to assess what issues they care about and make the best choices for their decisions. So it's not just the logistics and the fundamentals of making sure that they can participate, but making sure that folks are actually able to receive their voter guides, hear from candidates, understand what ballot initiatives are on the ballot this year, and that they can cast, uh, cast their smartest vote. Yes, voter education is so, so important and very critical, especially now, since we can't be on the ground and knocking on doors like we generally are. Um, thanks for that. Uh, Danielle, um, you and your CAP colleagues collaborated with the NAACP on a joint publication examining the need to protect the integrity of electoral process during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the ways, some of the main takeaways from that piece? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I will, um, at the end of this, bring Tiffany in to, to talk through um, some of the takeaways from NAACP's perspective as well, uh, which it was wonderful partnering with y'all on this piece. Um, so basically, the product was born out of 
concern um, by what we were seeing in some states uh, where officials were um, in, in moving their elections to um, all vote by mail in an effort to protect voters and election officials. Um, in the process of doing that, they were eliminating entirely all in-person voting options. Um, and we know that there are some voters who require in-person options to vote. So in particular, we think about some people with disabilities who require accommodations that are only available at polling places. Um, we also think about um, individuals um, living on tribal lands who may not have access to reliable postal services to receive and return ballots, uh, particularly by some of the strict deadlines that states have um, for when ballots need to be received um, in order to count. Um, we also worry about individuals who rely on same-day voter registration to cast ballots. Um, millions of people rely on same-day voter registration every single year. It's critical. It's particularly important for young people. Um, and for logistical reasons, it really can only be carried out at in-person polling locations. Um, and we wanted, we wanted to, to sort of lay that out um, for, uh, for governors and, and other lawmakers um, who, were, who were thinking about how to change their election systems to mitigate public health concerns. Um, but we also want to ensure that in doing so, um, they are not inadvertently disenfranchising certain, certain communities. Um, and our report also looks at how um, eliminating all um, in-person voting options can also uh, potentially disenfranchise African Americans, which I will let Tiffany talk more about. And I would love to uh, pick back up on that uh, just after this commercial break. Thanks so much, Danielle, for that answer. Um, sounds like a great report. You have been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we'll be right back with you after this commercial break. is important, but finding the right people can be a real challenge. That's why ZipRecruiter is obsessed with finding you qualified candidates fast. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds candidates with the right experience, then alerts the most qualified ones to apply for your job as soon as you post it. You can even add screening questions to your job post, narrowing your focus to only relevant applicants, saving you time. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just one day. The right candidates are out there. This is how you find them. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. We're so confident that ZipRecruiter will get you better results than anywhere else. We'll let you try it free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter.com slash free. Major key alert. Don't ever play yourself. The key is to make it. So make it. Learn the real major keys to getting to college at GetSchooled.com. Brought to you by GetSchooled and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders of The Laura Flanders Show. Watch every week on Free Speech TV, Link TV, YouTube, or if you're in New York, CUNY TV. Prefer to listen? Subscribe to the free podcast at lauraflanders.org. I end every week with a commentary. I call it the F word. Here's this week's. Guest commentary comes by way of Kenyon Farrow, senior editor of TheBody.com and TheBodyPro.com. Breaking down the racial and economic disparities, he shares his insights on COVID-19. This virus outbreak affects the most vulnerable communities while exposing a broken healthcare system in the United States. How will communities come together during this pandemic and what policies need to be addressed from government? Here's Kenyon Farrell. Most infectious diseases, they tend to travel the routes of 
inequality in any society. If we already look at what we know about just some of the risk factors in terms of senior citizens and people who have um, some underlying kind of health issues there, we know that there are racial disparities in diabetes, for instance, in hypertension impacts African-Americans and Latinos in this country and heart disease. So we may potentially over time see some real racial stratification in terms of um, who is impacted. And also just given that so many workers who are unable, say, to, you know, take off because they're in service industry jobs, um, tend to be more black and brown folks. One of the things that came out of the AIDS epidemic is that it did bring people together uh, in a moment where things were really unsure um, to really uh, take care of one another, but also fight like hell to live. And, and if that meant, you know, fighting the government, the hospitals, public health, researchers, pharma companies, people fought. And so I think we need to kind of carry that same spirit uh, in thinking about what it is we need to do to take care of our personal selves and also our loved ones and our just larger community. But also, what does this expose about the kinds of things that we don't have in place as a society that will prevent this from happening in the first place? So we should be fighting like hell for paid sick leave. We should be fighting like hell for Medicare for all. We should be fighting like hell for lower drug costs. We should be fighting like hell for people to have access to these things. To think about all of this kinds of um, infrastructure that we don't have in place um, that this virus exposes that we take care of one another and continue to fight for our lives. If you've yet to subscribe to our podcast, do it through your favorite podcast app. And if that app is Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a review. It helps us spread the word. Thanks. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. This is your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host, Adwithia Jean. Thank you for joining us. Um, today we are talking about how we protect our elections for November. 2020 is a really big year, and we just heard about this really great uh, report that was a joint effort by two of our special guests. Uh, we are joined by Tiffany Lofton from the NAACP and also Danielle Root from the CAP Democracy team. Welcome back, guys. Um, so, Tiffany, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the report uh, that you and that the NAACP and CAP worked on? Um, what are some of the, like, why is it critical to not only expand vote by mail, but also maintain and possibly expand access to in-person voting? Um, well, I mean, th that's a fundamental question uh, outside of the report. That is just because that's how democracy should work in America. And um, whether you're a person of color or whether you're uh, uh, come from a low-income community or whether you come from an educated background or not, folks need to have access um, to the fundamental right of being a citizen of America and that's participating in our democracy. This report that the NAACP has partnered um, with for American Progress it really gets to focusing, I think, on two major things. One, identifying and naming the ways that voters are disenfranchised and the ways that they are discriminated against um, when it comes to voting practices, whether that be um, some of the things that Danielle named, but in addition to that, young people and black folks also change their addresses far too frequently, and sometimes that uh, removes them from the process. We also saw, of course, in these last couple of elections, voters getting purged because their last names or their first names were hyphenated or they didn't um, match the ones that were on their ID. We also know that uh, signature verifications are things that are just um, rules that either secretaries of states have created or that legislation has created to make access to democracy and participating in democracy a lot more difficult. This report uh, names what those challenges and, and what those voter suppression efforts are for 
those communities. And then secondarily, it names some solutions, right? So we talked about how folks are disenfranchised, but we need to expand same-day voter registration. We need to make online voter registration a thing in all states, which is currently not. We need to track um, a ballot program, make a, a tracking program for ballots so that we can track where ballots go so that folks lose them or folks want to make sure that their vote got counted. We're able to verify that. Um, we want to make sure that there's um, no requirements for, no uh, onerous requirements for absentee ballots and a robust education program just to make sure that, um, you know, we're talking about these things now during the pandemic because now more than ever we need these protections. But this is like outside of COVID-19 just in general. Educate, I mean, excuse me, elections should be more accessible. They should be um, transparent. They should be easily accessible to people who are uh, in suburban communities and urban communities for students as they travel and as they move and change their address and especially for communities of color. And so I'm really glad that we have the report not only to help us identify what those um, uh, voter suppression efforts have been and how to fix them, but also as a way for us to advocate for uh, a more inclusive democracy moving forward, even when we're able to go outside. Yes. Um, that's really, really important and very, very true. Hard to agree with everything that you just shared. Uh, Tiffany, I know you specifically work with young people and college students, and I know that this has also come up within our conversation today. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about what are some of the barriers to voting that young people and college students, especially young people and college students of color, might face in this election? Yeah, I mean, um, for the conversations that we've been having with our students, we've been having a few focus groups over the last couple of weeks while we've been on lockdown quarantine. Um, <laughs> I think I'm on day like 47 or something. And uh, we've been meeting and talking to our students who have been relocated to ask them um, how they feel about the elections and what's going on. There's a lot of, like I said earlier, just miscommunication about how elections are gonna be working moving forward. Again, there were 18 states, I think, I believe I said 18, 18 15, excuse me, 15 states that have postponed their elections. So folks thought that they were gonna be able to turn out for primaries and then it got moved. Um, and they wanna know what that means for national conventions. They wanna know what that means for um, their vote to be able to cast their ballot at their institution or at their school where they typically vote. Um, and outside of just the education piece, some of the um, uh, suppression efforts that we've seen and what makes it harder are some of the things, like we said, we named in the report. Things um, around making sure that there is similarities between your signature or your name or your address, making sure that it's correct. Um, one of the things that the NAACP has been doing uh, remotely since our folks are not able to go knock on doors and do dorm storming or table in, their, in the middle of their school is to text all of their friends that they know either are high propensity voters or family members that they think are low, low propensity voters. And uh, when we text them, we ask them simple questions like, hey, do you know if you're registered to vote? Um, have you checked your registration status? Do you know where you should be voting in person? Do you know when the elections are? If you've relocated, did you request your vote by mail ballot? Um, and you can do all of that with one simple link, vote.org, which the NAACP is also partnering, also partnering with to make sure that folks are able to do all of those things in one big swoop on one website. So you can go to vote.org to do a few things. You can check your voter registration status, you can register to vote, and you can find out all of the crucial deadlines and information about the election process in your state just by visiting, visiting vote.org. And so it makes it really easy since our folks are in the house for them to share that online on social media, to send emails about it, and to also text their friends. I love that. And I'm gonna just repeat that for uh, folks. It's vote.org, is that right, Tiffany? Super simple, yep. Super, super simple. Okay, check, got it. We're gonna share that on our social too. Um, I also really uh, think it's so, and I'm, I'm sorry to our listeners who are sick of hearing this, but I think some of what you were saying, Tiffany, just now um, is so important that this pandemic has uh, not only exposed um, how bad some of these situations, like some of these problems with our um, with our democratic system, are problems that have existed for a long time. And it, this uh, pandemic is not only um, exposing those problems, it's also exacerbating those problems, especially for vulnerable communities and communities that were already facing some of the uh, more serious ramifications of lack of access, of gerrymandering, um, of being, uh, of, of moving a lot like college students or, um, or young people of color. Um, so I just, I really wanted to just emphasize that like it, these are all problems that have already existed um, and we're just seeing uh, this this pandemic just make them even worse it seems um, 
So in the past couple of months, we have also seen states take super different approaches when it comes to holding primary elections. And Danielle, I was I was interested in getting your take. Like, what are some of the good decisions and also some of the more alarming decisions that you've seen made? Like, what would you advise states that still have upcoming primaries to do? Right. So I think, you know, besides what we've sort of covered already on this call, which is please don't completely eliminate all in-person voting options. Um, I think that, you know, we've seen, we've seen states like Georgia, um, which sort of always comes up as a, hmm, maybe they shouldn't have done that state, um, which, you know, on the, <laughs> one, on the one hand, the Secretary of State said that they were going to, um, you know, automatically send applications for absentee ballots um, to all qualified voters in the state, but at the same time said that he was also going to establish an absentee voter fraud commission, um, which is not helpful um, and also totally unnecessary. Um, so that sticks out as a not particularly um, you know, helpful advancement, I would say. Um, you know, we also saw early on in Maryland, um, Maryland had actually uh, originally planned to eliminate all of their in-person options as well. But um, in recent weeks, um, due to some really great work by grassroots organizations in that state, um, we're convinced to, to open at least a few um, for the upcoming primaries, which is great. Um, you know, we, we do see a lot of other states, uh, like Michigan, um, some you know, West Virginia as well, um, are also planning to automatically send, uh, absentee ballot request forms to all registered or active voters. Um, you know, while I think ideally we would prefer for lawmakers to be sending actual ballots, to all registered and qualified voters, as opposed to application forms, which can create, you know, barriers in the process um, as well. Uh, so not ideal, but steps in the right direction. We've also seen states like Delaware and Indiana, uh, which had previously required voters to provide uh, an excuse prior to getting an absentee ballot, expand or loosen those requirements so that more people during the pandemic are able to uh, vote from home, which again is, is an, encouraging, an encouraging step. Um, so, you know, we're seeing some of that nationwide, um, just the, an expansion of um, the ability to vote by mail. Um, but unfortunately, really not a lot of anything around uh, voter registration. So a lot of states, while they have expanded um, the ability to obtain absentee ballots, have really done nothing to extend voter registration deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, or put some of the other critical policies in place um, that will protect voters and make sure um, that they can uh, register and cast ballots uh, when they go to the polls or, you know, when they vote from home. So, you know, it's great that a lot of states are looking to expand access to vote by mail, but um, they also need to be sure not to forget about the importance of voter registration policies, um, or extending early voting periods, whether that be the hours that polling places are open or the number of days. Um, our sort of best practice um, is at least 14 days, at least two weeks of early voting, including on weekends. Um, and a lot of states don't have that. Uh, states, a lot of states have you know, some variability of, of early voting, but um, we are encouraging all states during the pandemic to give people uh, lots of opportunities to on when they want to cast their ballot, which has the added benefit of reducing the number of people that are in a polling place at any given time, um, thereby um, contributing to um, making sure that the in-person voting options that are preserved remain safe. Thanks, Danielle. Um, I 
think that's really disappointing that it's great to hear that there's a lot of um, work happening to expand vote by mail, um, but kind of disappointing to uh, hear that they're not also expanding the voter registration. I think that's why it's really important for us to kind of be proactive around voter education and following some of the tips Tiffany shared with us earlier. Um, so thank you all for joining us right now. We're going to hop to another break and be back after this. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. We discovered that my daughter was using drugs. We were really at a loss. We'd been told by so many people to kick her out, to use tough love. You can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to substance use disorders. They're all different. You are the only one that knows your child. It's a slow process, and although it hasn't been perfect, she's not using drugs anymore, we're really hopeful. We're all in recovery from this disease. There's hope and help at drugfree.org. A message from Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. Loans are made by WebBank. Rates and terms vary based on credit history. Amazon is not a sponsor of this promotion. Other restrictions apply. See website for details. I was making great progress on building my savings, but then I get hit with an unexpected car repair bill. Keeping a close eye on my credit score allowed me to buy my first house, but an unexpected medical emergency set me back. When the unexpected happened, Avant was there to help. If you need to borrow $2,000 to $35,000, try Avant. It's fast, simple, and transparent. Everything is done online. There are no prepayment fees and no collateral is required. And you can instantly check your rate with no impact to your credit score. Over 500,000 customers have experienced the convenience of a loan through Avant. No wonder Avant has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. And now, Avant will give you a $50 Amazon.com gift card after your first payment is made on time. To check your rates and to get this special radio offer, go to Avant.com today and enter promo code 5252 when applying. That's A-V-A-N-T.com, promo code 5252. Go to Avant.com today and enter promo code 5252. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome to Code WAC, your podcast on America's broken healthcare system and how Medicare for All could help. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. Today, we'll hear from a public health expert about the coronavirus crisis and how America can be better prepared for the next pandemic. We have Dr. Tony Eiten again with us. He's the Senior Vice President for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment, a statewide health foundation, and he previously served for seven years as Director of Alameda County's Public Health Department. Welcome to Code WEC, Dr. Eiten. Are there any ways that Medicare for All could help Americans respond to public health crises like the coronavirus pandemic? This is the big question. You know, what are the incentives in our healthcare system today? And disproportionately, even for the not-for-profit ones, but disproportionately, those incentives are an economic bottom line. For the not-for-profit ones, it's it's basically survival in a in a competitive market. For the for-profit one, it's shareholder value. Uh, if that's the goal of your system, your system is not going to want to make the kinds of investments in redundant capacity uh, that's necessary for something like a pandemic. If you take the profit motive out, as does Medicare for all. If you can construct incentives to try to improve health as opposed to try to maximize profits, then yes, um, you know, Medicare for all can actually serve to uh, better prepare us in the event of a pandemic because folks will be thinking we need to have some extra capacity for ventilators or the ability to move some of our beds into ICU beds in the event of a pandemic because our goal now is to improve health, not just to profit. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. You can also listen to our episodes at www.heal-ca.org. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy.
Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. So uh, we have two special guests here with us on the air today. Um, we've got Danielle Root from the Center for American Progress, as well as Tiffany Dina Lofton from the NAACP. And we are talking about elections in the light in light of COVID-19. Um, and so I wanted to jump a little bit into the state of play right now um, on the Hill. Democrats have asked for $4 billion in election protection funds um, for reasons that we have just been talking about this entire show. So, so needed in order to make sure we have safe, healthy, fair, um, accurate elections. Um, but Democrats have still not yet succeeded in procuring that money. So, Danielle, this question um, is for you. Uh, why, why do we need $4 billion um, and what would that money do in terms of protecting the election? Yeah, so I think, you know, when people hear we need to implement more vote by mail, um, they think, wow, okay, so we print a few more ballots, uh, print a few more envelopes, no big deal. Um, there is a lot that goes into bolstering vote by mail systems. So it's not just printing um, ballots, envelopes, application forms, which is itself, um, you know, not a small cost, particularly in states with 7 million or more people in them. Um, but it's acquiring very, very expensive ballot tabulating equipment and ballot sorting equipment, um, hiring um, the number of staff that are necessary to go through the ballots, to receive the ballots, um, to uh, sort the ballots. Um, and conduct, you know, post-election audits on these things. So there's a lot, a lot that goes into um, getting state infrastructure ready for mass influxes of vote by mail. Um, and it's in addition to this, there are other policies that are really necessary to protect elections during a pandemic. And we've talked about some of these previously. So um, costs associated with implementing same-day voter registration to protect voters um, who, because of the pandemic, might otherwise miss traditional voter registration deadlines, um, implement online voter registration, which is critical in the event of postal delays, um, which, you know, not totally out of, out of the question with everything happening right now, um, as well as the extended early voting periods that we talked about previously as well and the importance of those. Um, so there's lots of costs, uh, not only in terms of the equipment that states need to buy, but in terms of the staffing, um, you know, procuring the materials, the sanitary materials and protective equipment that poll workers need, that polling places need to be fully stocked with um, to make sure that everyone um, involved in the voting process remains safe. And again, um, and critically important to prevent community spread of COVID. Um, so, you know, $400 million is a great start, but it's also a drop in the bucket. Um, and that's, that's how much Congress has so far given states um, and estimates by really, really smart people and organizations that do this kind of thing um, all the time for their jobs have determined that to make all the necessary upgrades somewhere in the range of two to $4 billion. Um, and the more accurate number is, is likely to be more or around $4 billion rather than the $2, the two billion, which was really only factored in um, for, for, I believe, either primaries or the general election, but not both, um, or vice versa. Um, so, you know, $4 billion really is what is necessary to prepare elections. Um, and unless states get this federal funding from Congress, um, they are going to have to... Um, cut corners and risk people's health in the process. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we do not want to happen. Um, clearly, we did not end up in this position overnight. Like policymakers and government officials have been sounding alarm bells for years over targeted voter suppression measures that have made it hard for people to exercise their right to vote. Uh, Tiffany, can you elaborate on why that has been the case and what we should be doing longer term to ensure that future elections are protected as well? 
Hey, Tiffany, I'm, I think that uh, we're having a hard time oh, hearing you. Hello? Yep, yes. we can hear you just great. Oh, Go ahead. I'm, Go for know, it. Answer, and you guys didn't even hear what I was saying. <laughs> there was, I'm sure it was fire. <laughs> All I was saying was, um, we've talked a lot, of, a lot today, this has been a great conversation, just about some of the things that we know have prevented um, everyday Americans from participating in democracy and how we can rectify those things, not just because of COVID-19, which is, um, like Danielle said, exacerbated them, but also things that need to be put into place in the future. One of the things that I think, um, you know, that that I would work with on my end at the NAACP is that we need to focus on making sure we train and get younger people talking about civics and civic engagement at an earlier age because they are being exposed to through social media, through the news, through their experiences, through their parents, et cetera, um, to making these decisions in advance. And it's more likely that when they get older, um, if they're uh, 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 trained and educated while they're in school now on what's happening with politics and elections, that when they get older, they're automatically know that they're, it is their civic duty and it is their assignment to make sure that they participate and go vote. But if we don't instill that, in them while they're young, which is the work that I have to do now at the NAACP, is training our younger folks to have these conversations. That when they get our age, it's gonna they're gonna have to learn it all over again, and they're not gonna understand what it is that they have to do or why it is that they have to do it. So I, I think that just you know the pieces around the legislative piece is important that institutionalizes our work. But what we need to do is a moral shift and change in how we teach education and talk about education with our young folks, so that we're making this a part of their everyday lives and they're not experiencing the real world outside of the classroom, that they're actually learning about the real world inside the classroom. Fabulous, thank you so much, Tiffany. Um, and we have just a few minutes left here um, in the show and I wanna make sure um, that people can know where to go to find all the awesome work that you guys have been doing um, and find for more information about you and your organizations. Um, so Tiffany, uh, where should folks, uh, can where can folks go to find more information about you? So they can follow NAACP Youth and College Division at NAACPYC underscore on all social media platforms, including we just opened up this week a TikTok account. So we are literally everywhere. Um, you can also visit our website at NAACP.org for more information. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Um, and Danielle, uh, where can folks go to find more information about you and about the Center for American Progress and the work that you all are doing? So you can visit the Center for American Progress's website. Um, and um, if you go under uh, staff and faculty, I am, um, you can find me right there, Danielle Root. Um, I do not have a Twitter account, so uh, <laughs> you cannot find me on social media. Um, but you can always find uh, the excellent work that, that CAP and uh, my, my team, but, other, but also other CAP teams are doing at uh, the AMPROG uh, Twitter account. Thanks so much, Danielle. And that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much to our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our senior press associate, Emily Leach, our guests, Tiffany Dina Lofton and Danielle Thank Root. You. And to all of our listeners, uh, check us out on genprogress.org and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye everyone. Thank you. Guys. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you ultimate control. With the XFi app, you can pause the Wi-Fi at the push of a button. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi.